вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Though a lot has happened this week, from Crimea to the sacking of Sergei Ivanov, I'm going to forgo a commentary so we can get right into the main event. Though he needs no introduction to Russia watchers, I'm very pleased to welcome Mark Galliotti to the podcast. In this wide-ranging interview, Mark gives his diagnosis of Russia on the eve of parliamentary elections, the nature of Putinism, what Putin's recent cadre shuffles signify, and what his Russian sources are telling him about their sense of the times. Mark Galiadi is an expert on Russia's security services and a prolific commentator on current Russian domestic and international affairs. He is the principal director of the Mayak Intelligence Consultancy in Prague and senior researcher at the Czech Institute for International Relations. He blogs on Russian security affairs at In Moscow Shadows. Here's Mark Galiadi. I want to start by having you give your understanding of the Putin system, because I think having a general theoretical framework, if we could call it that, or at least analytical framework for how you understand this creature that has emerged over the last 15 years as a system. So I want to ask you, what main elements do you see in the Putin system? And do you think there has been enough consistency over the last 15 years to identify something called Putinism? This is one of the interesting questions, Putinism. And obviously, everyone has a whole variety of different definitions. Brian Taylor from Syracuse has the interesting notion that it should be considered a code rather than anything else. I am inclined to think that Putinism can be regarded as actually a useful concept rather than just a handy shorthand. Because although we can see very, very distinct differences in the policies applied, and also in his conception, it appears, of what is in his and in Russia's best interests, from a really very sort of pragmatic early point, where he saw that actually Russia was best suited by, shall we say, a control, maybe I want to use the word managed, connectivity with the West to the current much more hostile, much more ideological, much more history and legacy driven sort of model. But I think if, if one tries to identify the, the sort of the characteristic elements within it, I mean, one one is obviously nationalism. That's a fairly banal and obvious point. But I, I, want, I want to hold off the, right now for that and ask you about that, because what do you mean by nationalism? Because a lot of people throw nationalism around in describing Putin, but it, it, it's, it's difficult to talk about because on the one hand, he he does use ethno-nationalist rhetoric, but not always. He, he also tends to shy away from it. So what do you mean by nationalism? Well, I, I see nationalism in this context being Russia as a country. Um, so we're not talking about Russians. I mean, actually, you know, if one has to, and let's be honest, one often has to sort of struggle to try and find redeeming qualities. But, you know, for example, one redeeming quality of Putin, by by the standards of, of Russian leaders, is he does not appear to have uh, any particular anti-Semitic side to him. Um, likewise, I mean, actually, if if one looks at the ethnic composition of people on whom he relies, they're certainly by no means all Russians. There doesn't seem to be that sense of Russians for the Russians. And if anything, although he's perfectly happy to sometimes play with and use the ethno-national thug wing 
actually, I think he regards it as often more of a problem than anything else. I mean, one can see everything from the sort of the rollback of Novorossiya to the treatment of um, things like Biryulyeva and such like. You know, this, this is not a man who actually wants to yoke himself to the kind of the the Russian for the Russians position. I mean, in this respect, it's quite interesting that it was one of the areas in which Navalny was able to outpoint Putin. So nationalism, but in the sense of Russia, a country with a distinct um, heritage, legacy, geopolitical role, and civilizational legacy that clearly is thoroughly intershot with issues like, um, you know, obviously the Russian Orthodox Church and so forth, but is not actually identified that. I mean, for me, I still feel that one of the kind of the best ways of, of, of understanding this aspect of Putinism was that famous shot when Sergei Shoigu, as Minister of Defense, came into Red Square for the Victory Day Parade and very ostentatiously crossed himself. Now, no one believes for a minute that Sergei Shoigu, non-Russian, non-Russian Orthodox, actually had suddenly converted. He was just simply making a kind of a gesture of conformity with a sense of what is distinctively Russian as a nation. And I think so as long as you play with those rules, you're fine. Right. So it's in the, in the sense of Russian as a unit, Russia, the Russian state as a unitary state, Russian history as a unified narrative, and Russian culture as the main cultural foundation for those two things. Exactly. But, it, but it's a cultural foundation that is not, in my opinion, exclusive. It's not if you haven't got the right blood, you're not in. But it might say as long as you're, you're, you're willing to kind of conform and, you know, whether or not you actually become orthodox or whatever. But, you know, you don't make a big deal of being opposed to it. Then, you know, again, in some ways, it's actually being a member of the Russian Orthodox Church is as much anything else gang colors as it is any expression of deeply rooted religious belief. Okay, I just wanted to get clarification on the question of nationalism because it is used so often and I don't exactly know what people mean, especially in the Russian context, because it's far more complicated than in other places. So, okay. So I think the second key element, again, I mean, and, and please don't expect anything particularly exciting, statist. Um, you know, this is clearly someone who actually believes that the state is definitely the solution and not the problem, and that it is important for Russia to have a powerful and, and centralized state. But again, I think we, we should see well, what kind of state, because in a way this links to the fact that this, he's essentially, I think, a, a very much about a personalized form of rule. Because the irony is at the same time as we've, we, we've had a regime which clearly believes in the state, we've also seen a hollowing out of much of the state, a deinstitutionalization of much. That it actually is much more about kind of personal personal bonds, ad hoc relationships, and, and, and so forth. And one can see institutions which matter, and particularly for me, the presidential administration has emerged, fittingly enough, as the central... It, it has become what in some ways the Communist Party central apparat was in the Soviet times, the sort of the central body that takes all these often disparate and confused and overlapping structures and actually tr tries to create some kind of strategy and managerial control over them. So it's a state, but very much it's, it's become informed with a whole l'état-c'est-moi sort of sense that in fact it's, it's not just simply about institutions, because institutions come with constraints. Institutions actually control you. And I think the third element is, I mean, he's often described as a, as a conservative. I mean, I've used it, whatever. And he, and he is conservative in terms of in many of his ideals. But actually, there's something that I think is, is quite persistently radical about Putin's model. And again, I think this links in with the deinstitutionalization. You know, a constant renovation of the elites. 
And even when people say, oh, well, he wants to bring in the Siloviki or the, the ex-KGB and whatever, but even then we actually see sort of different elements being elevated and then withdrawn and so forth. And also this very strong populist dimension, which, yes, to a large extent is about simply mobilizing the masses so that they do what they're told and are really enthused and happy about doing what they're told. But I think it's more than that, in my opinion. I mean, I think it, it is this anti-liberal but nonetheless populist notion of of state and ruler that actually sort of you know he he does get his legitimacy his authority by his relationship with the russian people and in some ways i, I suspect that i mean the only person who looks at putin's personal popularity ratings more assiduously than western russia watchers is probably putin himself so you put all these together, and I mean, it's a really dangerous term to use, but in some ways it is reminiscent for me of original Mussolini-era fascism. Not the, not the very, very different structures and, 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 and culture which, which we saw in Germany, but, but this notion that, 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 that it's about the glory of a nation that has to be expressed through a state, but nonetheless that state is not first and foremost in the hands of an elite, but actually in the hands of one man who is channeling the aspirations of the masses. The elite, in that respect, become a, a necessary evil rather than actually the core of the state. Because I actually, when I think about it, I, I in, and I think about what you just laid out in terms of historical parallels, it to me it seems like a combination of, say, Tsarist Russia, particularly the, the lack of gap between, say, leader and people, Right. And the legitimacy, late Tsarist Russia, legitimacy from from the masses, this this direct connection, this the apparatus of the presidential administration as a quasi kind of Politburo taken from, of course, the Soviet form of uh, of governance, and then also the personalization too is a is a has deep historical roots within Russian traditional statecraft. So I actually see it as more as a combination than anything. I don't know what you would think of that. Well, it's difficult because I mean, we can always treat history as a convenient buffet, picking a little bit here and a little bit there. And and I say this as an historian who is just as prone to the same vices myself, we often have a tendency to, to desperately scrabble around looking for historical parallels. I'm currently writing something that's looking at comparing Putin and Nicholas I. Mm, very good. So, I'm glad so, to hear that. <laughs> um, but but the, so in, in this respect, you know, I, I mean, there's always a natural caution, I think, about sort of looking for this kind of almost teleological overlay of, of, of different historical levels. But, I'm, but I think it is important. I mean, and I think it's, it, it, it is quite a compelling way, because in some ways, what has happened is, is Putin has taken many of the sort of the, the fundaments of precisely the czarism, especially the sort of, you know, when it wasn't being particularly russifying and, and too closely connected with Russian as a, a nation, a people, but has overlain with it some of the managerial lessons of the Soviet era. In some ways, it's almost like, as it were, the, the instruments of the Soviet era combined with the ideas of the Tsarist one. You see, I, I, I've just gone to the buffet and sort of taken a different route through the buffet, but pretty much ended at the same table. Right. Yeah. We, and I think we're eating the same food, too. <laughs> right. So, well, given how, how you understand Putinism in these terms, what is your general assessment of the present state of Russia a month before? parliamentary elections? Well, 
I mean, first of all, I should say that uh, I'm not expecting much from the parliamentary elections, not just in the obvious sense. I don't think any of us will be staying up late to watch the, watch the poll results come in with a keen sense of it could go either way. But even in terms of, as it were, the outcomes afterwards, I mean, in some ways, I think these are just a sort of a necessary precursor. It's the presidential elections that are obviously the, the important ones. And, we, and the, the presidential elections, I think, that everyone is kind of looking at. The Duma elections are important because they're a kind of a, because they are more than anything else, a plebiscite. And therefore, they, they set the foundations for the, the presidential ones. So what am I saying? Well, I think, you know, we're in this situation in which the Russian state has, in my opinion, considerable brittlenesses, shall we say, within it, despite the, the evidence of a slight sort of crackdown on, on corruption. I think corruption is still a potential major Achilles heel of, of the system, because it's something that everyone understands and everyone despises. Um, and if someone can mobilize that in a way that, in a mass sense, the way that Navalny was not able to, that could be important. The economy still, I mean, although it, it, it's weathered the worse and you know, there, there are conflicting indicators. I certainly don't think it's in a position where some kind of unexpected outcomes and, and, and uh, problematic, even on a regional level, outcomes couldn't couldn't happen, which could have then a sort of knock-on effect. And the more adventurous you are externally, the more chance there is of something unexpected happening. We saw that with the shoot-down of the, of the Russian jet and so forth. So, I mean, I, I think there's a whole variety of, of brittlenesses, but the point is about brittlenesses is, you know, actually systems can and usually do survive quite a long time with them, unless and until something comes to particularly sort of crack at that particular weak point. In many ways, the system is now, I think, very stable. And it's stable for a combination of reasons. Um, I think that actually the, the, the Kremlin has done quite a good job of blaming a lot of its problems on, on the West. I think there is a sense within the elite that you might say, although they, they may well, or some of them, may well like the idea of a policy or personality change in the, in the Kremlin, it's a dangerous thing to do, and they'll happily wait until someone else does it. And more to the, perhaps more importantly, there is no evidence of, of anything around around which sort of uh, any kind of opposition can mobilise. So in, in some ways, I mean, I, I, I think the sort of the Kremlin can be at the same time complacent and also worried. Complacent in that 95% of the time, I think nothing's going to come out which is really going to sort of challenge it. But worried because if that five percent happens, I think it could be pretty catastrophic for it. It's interesting that you say that now things seem quite stable to you because in late 2015 you wrote a really interesting article where you identified three Russias in competition with each other, a real Russia, and by that you meant the institutional rational state, if one can call it that rational, uh, a kleptocratic Russia, so the the tendency of corruption amongst the various bureaucrats and elites, and an ideological Russia. And you suggested that the contradictions between these might sharpen in 2016. How do you reflect on this now? Has this been the case or has things turned out differently? Well, I think they, they are sharpening and they have sharpened. Um, I mean, again, if one, if one looks at, at these sort of the different overlaps, uh, I mean, the real Russia, which is also, I mean, I would suggest you know, it's ordinary Russians who just simply want a normal life. And when they say a normal life, they, they mean a life that's, that's more like ours. They're not so bothered about grand political issues, but they just want to have a certain degree of security, stability, nice things in the shops that they can actually afford, and a sense that their kids are going to have a slightly better life than theirs. I think, I mean, one can see evidence that they are both dissatisfied with 
the kleptocratic state, which is essentially the, the elite who are busy sort of continuing to, to screw them for all they're worth. And also to an extent, I think, with, with grand policy that sort of obviously kind of links, links to Putin and, and the handful of people around him who are definitely committed to this bigger picture of a sort of building a certain Russia and a certain Russian place in the world. And, and that and that's visible, I mean, I, I would say in, in things like labor unrest, which, which continues to rise. It's, it's one of these very underreported stories because it's very, very hard for Western journalists to actually find out about it. It's clearly one of the things that, that the Kremlin does try to clamp down on, and it tends to arise in, in the regional press, which is actually you know, not really monitored by a lot of people. But, but nonetheless, you know, from some indications, as well as a lot of anecdotal stuff, one can see that labor unrest is on the rise. It's wildcat, it's short term, it's usually either quick quickly bought off or quickly suppressed, but nonetheless it's there. So so that's the sort of the, the dissatisfactions there. Then, as it were, between the, the, the ideologists and the kleptocrats, I think in a way the very fact that we're now seeing, in my opinion, uh, a slow burning but actual real beginnings of a sort of a purge is far too grand a term. But a campaign by the Kremlin to to renovate the elite I think is 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 demonstration of 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 this clash. That on the one hand, as it were, the Kremlin doesn't feel it has the elite it wants, but at the same time, it is also aware that that there is considerable dissatisfaction amongst people who really just want to be able to steal in peace, rather than find themselves in some kind of geopolitical contest with the West and the global order and and and, and everything else. But the the main point at the moment, at, at present, it is clear that the Kremlin is the strongest element. Is, is the Kremlin is not distracted. The Kremlin has already sort of moves like creating the National Guard. You know, is busy trying to essentially coup-proof itself. You know, I think because the National Guard, yes, these are the people who will be out cracking skulls if there's protests in the streets. But frankly, they existed before. I mean, National Guard is just simply a rebranding of existing forces and putting them under a new controller. The important thing about the creation of the National Guard was precisely to actually take these forces out of the interior ministry and put them under a guy who Putin presumes is wholly loyal to himself and is entirely outside the existing chain of command and basically reports to Putin. So in other words, I think that, that that's about, yeah, it's about trying to make sure that it, it will be impossible to have some kind of political coup that, that would succeed. Now, another theme that you've been dealing with consistently is you've noted the fact that the re regime seems directionless. And, and we've dealt with this, too, also um, on, on Brian's program on the Power of Vertical, and that, that you point out on numerous occasions that the Kremlin seems to lack a specific policy agenda. And when I was thinking about this, I, of course, was thinking about during Medvedev's term, the whole idea of modernization. And, and one may see that as hollow as one might be and as hollow as it was, but at least it was something. What do you mean by this lack of policy agenda and, and what gives you the impression that there is a directionlessness going on? I mean, in terms of a sort of lack of, of a clear agenda, I mean, I think what Putin and, and those around him have is, is a vision um, you know, of, of a Russia that is advanced and sovereign, by which he means not really constrained by the outside world, including international law, which you know basically means it, it needs to be strong enough to be seen like that, that he is respected, which again, as far as he's concerned, I think comes from strength rather than soft power or, or similar. The problem is that you know, we've got to realize that even if these people are, in my, as they are, in my opinion, fed a lot of politicized information that doesn't really tell the whole story, they're, they're fed in many ways comforting lies. But nonetheless, these are not imbeciles. And I think on some level, they must appreciate the incompatibility of their vision with the objective realities in which Russia finds itself. 
it cannot afford its current size of, of, of army, let alone modernize at the pace Putin would like. It has a distinct lack of any international sort of credibility. Even the countries which work with it, such as China and Iran, do so only on the most pragmatic of bases. There are some serious, serious um, problems looming, not just in terms of demographics, but in terms of the economy, regional debt, all kinds of, of other things. This is not the basis on which you can build that glorious, shining Russia on which they think. So there is that point of, well, what on earth do we do? And I think this is why and it also links into, I think, how Putinism works. Instead of it being based on detailed schemes emerging from the Kremlin, the, the chess player metaphor, which, of course, being Russians, they always have to go for the chess player metaphor. It, it doesn't work. I, I don't believe there is that. I think there is instead what one can almost call participative autocracy. That, in other words, the sort of the Kremlin decides the grand picture, and in, in all kinds of different individuals, agencies, and institutions scrabble to do something that they think might a please the boss and b advance Russia in that direction. And and that means you, so you have a lot of stuff happening. Right. This also seems to be an internal contradiction to the system in the sense of the deinstitutionalization on the one hand and the personalization on the other, where. You, the Kremlin will come up with some sort of grand plan and it needs to be implemented throughout the system, but the system has been institutionally hollowed out. So the regional functionaries are just looking to see what can they do to please the personal you know, wishes of the leader. Yeah, but it's also, I think, a case of that we actually have seen an absence of meaningful grand plans coming from the Kremlin. I mean, again, however easy it, it, it was to, to poke fun at, at Medvedev, uh, and indeed how personally satisfying it often was. Nonetheless, I mean, actually, he was the last incumbent of the Kremlin who really did try. And you know, maybe it's precisely the fact that it, it, it was such a you know, often rather embarrassing failure. That, that perhaps has, has deterred others. But I think it's more that just Putin's style is not, you know, he's, he's not someone who has at any point demonstrated that kind of detailed planning. I mean, his whole, his whole rise was, I mean, a very able opportunist, but nonetheless an opportunist one. And I think he's taken this, this opportunism and, and it has more or less become his, his general MO. And given that actually, you know, it's hard to think what kind of meaningful strategy within the, the practical and ideological constraints in which Putin finds himself that he could adopt. So in a sense, do you think that in order to adopt something, he would actually have to break some elements to, to actually do it? He would have to shake up the, the status quo to a, a large extent? Yeah. It's not at all impossible that if he actually did come up with some grand plan and said, no, this is what we're really going to do that it might be possible to apply it, especially if it did not cut across the grain of too many significant um, interests. But the point is, I, I see no evidence. And again, I mean, it's very difficult, sort of, particularly in such a, an opaque political system, to operate off a lack of evidence. But nonetheless, I, I see no evidence that there has been or that there is going to be a plan. There is a constant talk of plans. And but when it comes down to it, when, when you, even when you just read Putin's speeches, they're always about, we will address this. We will come up with a plan for that. We will make sure that the people who should be doing so-and-so actually are doing their jobs. It's not actually the kind of detailed, prescriptive, this is, the way we're gonna, this is what we're going to do, this is the way we're going to do it, this is where the money comes from, and so forth. 
it, it's still it's that kind of declaratory and and it's almost like he's actually saying well come on guys we know what we want so so someone sort it out i mean the very fact that, that in terms of i mean you know the, the sad truth after all is everything depends on economics you know he brings in kudrin his ex-finance minister, you know, and a man with whom he still has a personal relationship, a man who is also tends to be the sort of the secret weapon that is deployed when times are hard, both because the West always perks up when they see Kudrin coming on, onto the scene, and also because, you know, Kudrin is uh, an, an effective guy. You know, and, and at one point it looks as if Kudrin is going to be tasked with coming up with a serious, you know, what, what Ben Harris calls Plan K for the economy. But then as soon as it starts being clear that clearly you know, any meaningful economic plan is going to have significant political costs, not least because Kudrin is, you know, I hesitate to say neocon, but, but, but certainly, you know, he is very heavily committed to reigning in public spending, which, you know, translates to sucks to be you, ordinary Russians. That's the point where all of a sudden we start getting Kudrin sidelined again, that, that Putin's looking for alternative economic plans and, and such like. I think well, this is what it comes down to. I mean, for, a, for all his macho posturing, Putin has demonstrated himself to be extremely risk-averse in most situations, especially domestically. Russia is now in a position in which there are no easy answers. It was easy in his first two presidential terms. The international situation was pretty benign. The economic situation was, was you know, very, very positive. He had money to spend, and he spent it in every direction. Now, though, there are no easy choices, and that actually seems to be paralyzing him. It's interesting because you're you're providing a, a an image of Putin and his power that we don't often get, and that is, well, he is at once the most important person. He's also his power is incredibly circumscribed. I mean, it's limited in what he can actually do without a lot of cost. So given this, if this is the picture that you're painting, if I'm, I'm correct in kind of pulling everything together, how should we now look at Kremlin and Russia in general differently than the standard narrative we get? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, in terms of, you know, minor detail, I, you're absolutely right that, that my view is, is that Putin is, is far less powerful than the Western narrative. Um, and in part, it's precisely because actually Putin, I mean, has pushed that narrative himself. And, you know, there's this personalization of power, this whole sort of cult, the very way in which he would tend to operate by metaphorically parachuting into areas and solving problems as any good czar should, and before disappearing on his white steed. You know, who was that masked president? So, you know, he sort of he he can hardly be claimed that he's being sort of traduced when when the West takes him at his word. But no, we, we do have to appreciate, I think, first of all, the serious constraints, the very deinstitutionalization, which has meant, as it were, that Putin is relatively unconstrained, also means that Putin is in many ways relatively powerless. This is why states have bureaucracies and institutions, because it's how you run a complex modern state. And you, you, you can't expect to, to, to have it both ways. So we have to understand that Putin is relatively weak. I mean, he's ensured that there is no one else who can overrule him. He is still the ultimate arbiter on all key matters, especially as regards access to, to, to resources. But actually doing things is another matter. Second thing I think we have to appreciate is actually the weakness of Russia. And again, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, ranging from the fact of the natural human tendency to assume that the other, the other person is always 10 foot tall, to the fact that there is a whole series of industries, as it were, dependent upon it, the Russians are coming 
has become a very, very powerful narrative. Now, yes, I think that Russia is mounting you know, an, an aggressive and assertive attempt to divide and destabilize the West. But using relatively cheap instruments, because it doesn't actually have much else, and largely preying on our own weaknesses, arrogances, stupidities, and lacks of legitimacy. And I mean, and this ties in with the whole uh, sort of, you know, Trump narrative that we've had, you know, that, as if the Russians created Trump. No, I mean, they might in the short term be, be, be very much relishing the, the spectacle of the, you know, the world's last superpower being embroiled in this particular political farce. But nonetheless, they did not create Trump any more than they arranged Brexit or any of these other sort of crises that are, that are besetting the West. I think we have to realize that Russia is, you know, it, it is un, in many ways un, unpredictable, but essentially it is weak. And essentially that Putin is operating precisely because on some level he's aware of that weakness. Now, I think we both agree that corruption in Russia is both a carrot and a stick for how Putin manages his elite. And you've recently argued that Putin is altering that social contract with the elite to one that says, steal a bit less, do your job better. Now, stealing a bit less makes a lot of sense because there's a smaller economic pie to steal from. And if one is trying to take more than others, then that creates a lot of conflict. But why do your job better? Why is that the other half of this social contract that you see emerging? Well, my view is that in some ways they, they both come from the same wellsprings, which is precisely that, that, that Putin is aware that the money is running out. Just as corruption in some ways is a tax on not just every Russian, but also on the Russian state, because you know, essentially, it, it's not money that goes to the federal budget; it goes to people in the intervening place. So too, actually, is incompetence. Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, there's this general sort of figure, and again, you know, as all these round figures are, it's very much a sort of back of the envelope guesswork. But the, the main military prosecutor reckons that about up to 20% of the, you know, the defence budget is wasted. Now, okay, what does wasted mean? When I actually got to chance to speak to someone who'd, who'd been involved in these sort of calculations, he was pretty much actually sort of putting the, the line through the middle of, of how much was lost because of corruption and how much was lost due to particularly egregious incompetence over and above the, the sort of the usual level. And, and so I think this is the, the, the two things are, are one and the same in the sense of they are taxes on the state's resources. They, they, they diminish the state's resources at the moment, whereas in the past, Putin could have felt that, as it were, for the interests of maintaining a good relationship with the elite, he could let it slide. He's having to try and rein that in. But also because they are affecting the legitimacy of the Russian state. Again, we, we come back to this point of how do ordinary Russians think about the state? And to a large extent, it's defined by the quality of their lives. Now, when you have an elite that is enriching itself through corruption, but also in a way indulging itself through incompetence, well, this actually has a direct impact on, 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 on people's lives. And people are aware of this. And so I think this is why there, there, there is this need from, from Putin's perspective. It actually has become an economic and thus political problem for him the extent to which the elite have really been feather-bedded for so long. And, th and this goes to another issue, and that is that we've recently seen a number of high-profile arrests of governors and uh, the security police for corruption and the appointment of new officials, some of which, as many people have pointed out, perhaps, you know, 
too strongly that have backgrounds in security services. What do you make of these recent events within this kind of larger context of the the new social contract? Is it connected or is this a separate process altogether? Well, yeah, I think it's part of, of, of Putin looking to, as I said before, renovate the elite. That in some ways, you know, he's, he's realizing the extent to which the, these people are not necessarily his friends, but also not necessarily useful for him. And, you know, in hindsight, I mean, I think this actually goes back to the downfall of Russian Railways head Yakunin who was clearly a, a personal friend of Putin's, thoroughly political loyal, politically loyal, but A, had become embarrassingly publicly sort of known for his profligate lifestyle and his special room, you know, climate-controlled room for his furs in his mansion and everything else, but also wasn't regarded as being good at his job because he was, once again, he kept coming back and asking for more subsidies and more subsidies. And the whole point was Russian Railways was, was, was meant to be operating more on, on, on its own two feet. And therefore, Yakunin had to go. And it was nothing to do with whether his son was, was, was living in the UK or anything else. And so I think in hindsight, that was probably the, the start of, of this process. So but if, if Putin's going to be getting rid of people, he also has to appoint people. Now, I mean, I've written this on, on, on my blog that I think that the whole notion that this kind of current most recent renovation was... The, the rise of the guys in epaulets and all about the security police doing well, I think is, has been overblown. And I think it's as much as anything else that the way the Russian system works, the very fact that all of these appointments get rooted through the presidential administration and presidential decrees means that we inevitably see them in, coming in batches. And so it kind of it concentrates until people think, oh my gosh, it's a new purge or whatever, rather than this something that if, if it had happened, one appointment, you know, one resignation here, one appointment there, we might not have noticed as much. And it also, once you start making some moves, then it tends to lead to a whole knock-on series because you move someone from a middle-ranking post to a high-ranking post and then someone else has to be moved to that the middle-ranking post and, and, and so forth. So what I would suggest is, I mean, this, 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 this reshuffle in, in regional governance I think is important. But I think it has important in its own context. It's important, one, because, again, it sees the emphasis on regional governance. That you might say a, an appreciation, once again, that Moscow is not the, the all-important sphere. And if anything, uh, sort of the economic problems have created greater tensions between regional governments, many of whom are ludicrously in debt. And they're in debt because of the demands that Putin put upon them and a whole series of requirements. So basically, Putin put them into debt, and now Moscow isn't helping them out. Actually, Moscow is is the problem. So I think we, we, we're seeing growing regional central tension. So he's trying to actually address that by putting his own guys in there. New people who are presumed, therefore, to be loyal. Secondly, it's important because you know, where does he look for new people? Yes, in part, he looks to you know, basically ex-spooks. Because as one of them, he has an exaggerated notion of the fact that they're, they're loyal and everything else, but also that they're efficient. I think this is something that we forget. It's not just that he thinks that veterans of the KGB or the FSB or his ex-bodyguards in the FSO are going to be loyal to him. I think it's also that he thinks that they are actually good at their jobs. Whether they are on is, is another matter. But it's clear that he, he also looks elsewhere. I mean, there, there are other people who are also being appointed. So I think it's more that he's now looking for this sort of a, a younger cadre of people who don't necessarily have connections with, with regional elites, who aren't necessarily within the ultra-rich, and who, who, who seem to be, yes, willing to, to live a good life, but not ridiculously corrupt 
in in the kind of egregious and obvious ways. For example, you know, the the, the head of the, the Federal Customs Service, Belyaninov, who, after all, was also a personal friend of Putin's, but he had to go because he was just too obviously corrupt, but also because he wasn't regarded as doing his job well. So I think I think we are seeing a renovation of the elite in that respect. Right, and I think another factor of, in, that we perhaps should consider is the is the to make a, another historical comparison. Under the Soviet period, you actually had institutions for regenerating the elite or regenerating functionaries. You had institutions through the party. You had bodies that dealt with appointments and sackings and transfers. But outside the presidential administration, there doesn't seem to be a lot of mechanisms for elite renewal. So in a way, it's not surprising that A, it comes in batches, and B, it seems to come from one central place. I absolutely agree with you, and I think it's a really important point. And interestingly, I've been trying to see if there's any evidence to suggest that within the presidential administration, we are seeing in some ways a you know a, a new set of nomenclatura lists and you know that actually that there are people who are pulling together the there's there's this chap over in Bashkiria who we've heard good things about and and, and so forth and i can't see any evidence of that it, it may maybe that it's happening it may be that it's going to happen but at the moment yeah of course where else can putin go for people who are, whom he feels he can trust but the people he knows, and especially since he has, in many ways, withdrawn physically as well as politically from 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 Moscow. I mean, the very fact that he now sort of spends more of his time in his palace in the outskirts, summoning people to see him rather than actually being in the Kremlin, again further sort of limits the, the, the scope, the, the social world from which he's going to draw these people. And and the other issue too is that you know several years ago in the mid late two thousands, many. People were considering, and I would conclude myself, the creation of United Russia as a potential funnel for this type of, of cadres. But it's clearly not that at all. I mean, United Russia has, I mean, Putin has distanced himself as much as he can from United Russia. Yeah, and because again, if one looks at it, when, when, when United Russia was formed, it was very different from, I mean, here's a really banal point, from the Communist Party. You know, the Communist Party was from the first created essentially to be precisely the, 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 the new elite. United Russia was as much as anything else about essentially providing the cheerleaders for the new elite. It was actually quite separate. And yes, of course, you know, if you were, a, you know, a guy, on the rise and on the make, you probably had your United Russia card and, and so forth. But no one thought from the beginning that that was actually the way that a, a top level career was, was, was going to be made. And so I think, you know, from the first, they failed to really do this. They could have tried to do that with United Russia. But again, this, this is the kind of tedious nuts and bolts institution building stuff that Putin isn't interested in and doesn't really work. Because as soon as he'd done that, he would also have been giving power to United Russia. Whereas actually the, the whole point was it was never meant to be doing that. The Communist Party, it worked in that respect uh, as the source of the next sort of generations of leadership. And the price that it had extracted was actually the Communist Party, other than obviously during the sort of the worst eras of, of, of Stalin, but the Communist Party actually had control or authority or influence, however you wanted to put it, over the General Secretary and over the Politburo. Now, you, you've already mentioned this in our conversation today, but you also recently wrote about the, the fact that the inner workings of the Putin regime are incredibly opaque. And in solid information about what's actually going on there is, is lacking or it comes in piecemeal. And in many ways, we're kind of back to old kind of rene 
rethinking criminology and using methods of criminology, sometimes some of the worst aspects, but sometimes some of the, the decent and good ones. So I want to, and I know you have contacts within various elements of uh, the Russian security apparatus from, you know, within the police. And I want to ask you about your sources and contacts, and of course, not who they are and what institutions, but more, what are they telling you? What is their their view of what's going on? Are they forthcoming in their opinions to you? Or they are speaking less because of the situation? What kind of insider information are you getting as to the workings, the larger sense of how Russia is is ruled and working at the moment? This is, this is a, a tricky one. I mean, first of all, in terms of how forthcoming are they? Well, absolutely, ever since Crimea, this has become more and more of a problem. I mean, my experience, people whom I essentially knew as contacts and didn't really have any kind of serious personal relationship, now it's very, very difficult to speak to them if, if they're in an official position. And if you do, you'll just meet them in a sort of a formal setting with at least one other person there who is essentially, I think, there to be their alibi. Um, and you will get just the sort of the straightforward party line, which is useful sometimes, but nonetheless not, not particularly satisfying and not the sort of experience one would have before Crimea. The people whom I can talk to sort of more candidly are basically people whom I've known for five, ten, or God help me, 20 plus years, um, including some people who actually I met when I was doing my doctoral research. Now, you know, of course, I, I never age, but for some strange reason, they do. And therefore, it's quite handy that some of them actually have begun to retire, because obviously, you know, when they re you know, retire, they can sometimes feel a little bit more willing to talk. But nonetheless, you know, even they, if they're currently in a government or sort of pseudo government position, they are much, much more careful what they say, even people whom I, whom I know and trust and who I you know, believe trust me. But nonetheless, they'll, they'll, they'll talk a bit. And I must admit, the sorts of things I hear, I mean, they are almost universally dispirited these days. I mean, I spent the four, first four months or so of, of this year in Moscow and then popped back for a couple, couple of weeks during the summer. And, and yes, people very, very downbeat, both about their own personal situations, but also about the country. And the other thing that really struck me was... An extraordinary sense of disengagement, a sense of a lack of traction on the policy process, that whether they're police, whether they're soldiers, whether they're in other agencies, a belief that basically they and their institution, which many of them are actually still very proud, doesn't really have a say. That policy is something that comes from the high vertices through the clouds and just lands and they are just simply there to, to actually apply it. And whether it's what's going on in the Donbass or what's going on in Syria from the military's point of view, whether it was the creation of the National Guard from the police's point of view, you know, essentially it, they're just told what the way it's going to be. And usually without any notice, because again, I think this is a thing, this is a system which doesn't feel the need to float ideas and, and canvas opinion. And, and that obviously sort of means that the level of buy-in inevitably is is that much less. You know, the, on the whole, there are a lot of really smart, professional, impressive people within these various agencies, in my opinion. I don't mean to say that they would just phone it in if it was, you know, you know if, they're, if they have you know, other people's lives on the line or anything serious or whatever. But I am struck with that sense that, that they, 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 they do feel much, much less committed to what they're doing. And I'm also struck by how many of them are looking for, I hesitate to use the word escape routes, but certainly sort of alternatives. 
that actually just simply being a part of something bigger is no longer quite as meaningful to them as it was, frankly, even a year ago. And this is something that actually has, has, has generally been, been sliding. And the irony is that, you know, particularly if you think of the military, you know, they are intensely proud of their seizure of Crimea. They think that was a, you know, and with reason, it was a highly professional, very smooth operation. Okay, we'll move over from the, from the slide over the Donbass. Syria, likewise, I think given the constraints of running, you know, what after all is Russia's first and only long-range power projection operation not on its own borders? They are very satisfied with, with the, how well they've done, especially given from, from their point of view, they, they universally regard the Syrian forces as an absolute waste of space. So you might say they, they, they have reasons for feeling a certain kind of professional pride. But when you say, OK, should you be there? Do you care about this? They say, oh, should we be there? I don't know. Do I care about it? No, not at all. And when you say, well, you know, what was the military's role in this? And even people who I believe, I mean, and I'm, obviously I'm not going to pretend that I'm ch chatting with colonel generals or anything like this. But, but even people who, you know, at, at, at first or second hand uh, do have connections in with the, those kind of realms, even they say, no, not really. They might, you know, that the military might be brought in just to sort of answer nuts and bolts questions about how would you do X. But they would never really, even through Shoigu, feel that they have a sort of actually say. And this is something that I've seen replicated across the agencies. So I, I think there is a considerable disillusion. It's interesting. I mean, the, basically what, to put it in terms that I understand, there's, there's no transmission belt here in the sense of there's no ideas floating up because, well, they're not being asked for any. Um, they're really, it, it goes along with this idea that the center and the, the core of the state is receding more and more internally, and there's a vast disconnect between it and the, the levels under. Well, yes, and therefore, in, we go back to this, this notion of, of, of participative autocracy, that what you have is in some ways policy becomes one of those ghastly TV programs where, I don't know, a, a bunch of, of, you know, whether it's um, potential investors or potential bridal partners or whatever, get to choose between a sort of a, a, a selection of candidates. You therefore, in the, in the absence of any grand strategy, in the absence of, of a clear connection and, and channels for policy, often what you do is you precisely, you just try stuff. You try things that you think might work and you think might catch the eye. And if you're very lucky, they will catch someone's eye. I'm beginning to think of the eye of Sauron gazing down. But anyway, you, you will catch someone's eye and then it might become policy or at least might get some, some more support. But So unless you're willing to play this game of trying stuff, which obviously carries risks with it because it might not work, there's increasing reasons, you know, unless you're that terribly ambitious, to just simply think, no, I'll just, you know, I'll do my nine to five. I'll live, a, you know, because these, these are people who live pretty decent lives, both because of their sort of formal perks and, and wages and also because of the opportunities for, shall we say, informal enrichment. But, you know, basically, I'll, I'll just do my bit. And that is something that I have found really has changed. I, if you'd asked me this question a year ago, it was already happening, but people were still a bit more fired up by Crimea. Three years ago, again, I mean, I think people still had that sense that there was actually, you know, that there was something being created and that sort of time was on their side. But really, ever since, well, I said, last couple of years, really, I have felt a distinct erosion. This is not to say that these are people who will storm barricades to get rid of Putin. But on the other hand, these are also the people who might be less inclined to storm barricades to protect Putin. I mean, this is this is interesting. You've, you've painted a picture today of a Russia that is, it's just 
floating. It's just stagnant. It's it's not really moving anywhere. Um, it's it's gradually moving in a declension in terms of its overall picture, but it's ossified. I think this is the term I'm looking for. It's a system that's ossified. Now, elections in Russia are always, and this is my final question, elections in Russia are always periods where conflict bubbles to the surface. I mean, we saw this around the presidential elections last time and, and the time before, and presidential elections will occur in about 18 months. So we can probably assume that we're going to see some conflicts bubble to the surface between now and then, now and March 2018. So what factors do you think will determine whether Putin will seek a fourth term? Or do you think a fourth term is given already? Uh, do you think that there's a possibility we might see a shift in the direction of leadership to retire Putin or him take the mantle again? Or what kind of jostling that might occur to determine that question? I think there's two actually really interesting issues. One is Putin's own personal position and, and perspective, and the other one is is the impact of elections. Let me actually disaggregate them then and, and start with the elections. Um, I think these particular Duma elections, I don't think are going to be that exciting or, or, or significant. I think there's been a lot of effort put in to actually try and basically make them as bland as possible. There will, of course, be vote rigging, not least to make sure that the turnout is there, because I think that's actually going to be the real problem, not people voting for other parties, um, so much as just people not seeing the point in voting. So I think that's where we might well see the, the carousel voting and such like, just to get the turnout figures up. But nonetheless, I mean, I think the thing is, what, what is, is likely to happen in the Duma elections is that we will see the communists getting a little bit more of a bump. And in part, this is being pushed from the grassroots. It's not that uh, Zyuganov has suddenly become a fervent Leninist. Um, you know, let, let him stick to keeping his bees. Um, but you do have a new generation of people who aren't in, in themselves necessarily fervent Leninists, but who see the Communist Party as the only meaningful structure. Of, of registering a protest vote. And the interesting thing is we, we, we then have in, in you know, next year, we have the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. And inevitably, this is something that, that, that's going to be sort of potentially fraught. Putin is going to want to just turn it into a, if, if, if it's anything at all, it'll have to be about just generally the triumph of the Russian spirit or something like that. Uh, last thing he wants to do is see exaltation of Lenin. Um, but obviously, the, the Communist Party is going to, going to press for it to be something rather more. So, you know, there, there's an interesting potential in, inflection point there. But most importantly of all, after the elections comes the austerity. You know, it is clear there is going to have to be sort of a massive austerity program. Uh, and the only real question is how far, you know, whether it's a sort of full-on Kudrinism uh, or, or, or something that sort of, and I think it's unlikely to be that, something that is actually sort of geared more for the political realities. But if you're going to sort of keep funding Crimea and and, and Chechnya, as you basically committed yourself to, and a fair number of the loss-making industries in uh, Monogorods, where basically a whole city depends on one one industry, you know, and 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 sort of similar kind of political hot topics. It means you're going to have that much less for the for the ordinary spending on the ordinary people. So we're going to see. We've already seen a deterioration in public services. The whole issue of pensions, the, the potential for for raising the pension age, all the sort of classic austerity things are, 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 are going to bite. And given that, yes, we might see a slight improvement in the Russian economy in 2017, we're not going to see anything dramatic. I mean, really, the best we can hope for is, in meaningful terms, no more decline 
so, you know, for once, Putin is going to go into the presidential elections without the opportunity to, to throw money hither and yon, and without likely the obvious chances for some sort of nice crowd-pleasing gimmick. There, there are no more Crimeas to be pulled out of the hat. Um, there are no easy sort of successes in that respect. So I think this is, this is going to be, you know, probably his, his most challenging presidential election yet. And again, not because I think he's going to lose it. If there was even the faintest chance of that, then he'd make sure that it didn't happen. But, but precisely, it, he's not going to get the kind of accolades. And I begin to wonder then, so when we come to actually sort of Putin's future, there's two separate questions here. One is the extent to which the elite decide that he's become a toxic brand and they, they would rather someone else, which, I mean, has long been my view of, of how the likely way in which he'll actually be deposed. He's never going to lose an election. It's not going to be tanks on Red Square. It's going to be a sort of a political backroom deal where sort of 25 influential people get together and say, it's time for your last and greatest service to the motherland. But we'll look after you. But it's also, at what point does he decide this isn't fun anymore? And this is this is the difficult thing. And this is this is the point where you know when it comes down to it, you, you mentioned Kremlinology before. You know, this is this is a very opaque system in many ways. It's a lot that is actually very open, but the true decision making is very opaque. So, and I'll just tell it to you. I don't want to go around anyone else. But when it comes down to it, we just have to guess. We just have to go with what our gut tells us the way the system operates. And that certainly, just just on a, on a gut level, Putin, you know, all his most recent public appearances, you know, he, he's looked as if he's having much, much less fun. Even his big, usual sort of, you know, meet the Russian people, you know, sort of marathon phone-in show, which usually is precisely a chance for him to show how effortlessly he's in charge of everything and so forth. He he was fairly un, unmoored in that respect. So I I, I, I do wonder, even just on a, on a really human level, how long he's going to want to keep this up, especially when he's not bringing in triumphs. He's, you know, sure he can manufacture, they can, I don't know, he can dig up some Scythian pot somewhere in Crimea that they planted there the day before. But in real terms, it's interesting that I've been told by, by people, you know, in, in the Russian university system that these days, whenever Putin meets historians, he always asks them, you know, in a hundred years time, how will they talk about me? Which says something interesting about sort of, I think, where his head is at. Well, I mean, we have no idea just how far he um, is thinking about himself in any kind of real, realistic terms. But nonetheless, it's hard not to see him as a figure in decline. And just as if he had not, if he had basically handed power to Medvedev, spent his time as prime minister, and then gone off to be the father of the nation or make millions on the talk show circuit or whatever, history, I think, actually would would have treated him really quite kindly, perhaps far more kindly than he deserves, if you are, say, the Chechens. But nonetheless, I mean, I think, you know, he, he would have been regarded as an important figure who basically did something tough but necessary. Now, I think, in a way, the historians will be saying uh, his last disastrous term in which he got Crimea but lost Russia. Uh, and at what point does he begin to think that? So, I mean, I, I actually, I would be surprised if there was another term beyond this one. I would be surprised if he, I mean, I, I think either he's going to be encouraged to, to, to step down, or I think at some point he decides, this is not, this is not what I want to be anymore. It's taking time away from rhythmic gymnasts or whatever. Now I, I, I want to move on to something else. And yes, then the challenge will obviously be finding a, a suitable successor, finding a suitable modus vivendi, because given that Putin himself was a fairly disloyal client. But nonetheless, you know, he, he may well feel that he can do that. That was Mark Galliotti, the Principal Director of the Mayak Intelligence Consultancy in Prague 
and senior researcher at the Czech Institute for International Relations. He blogs on Russian security affairs at In Moscow Shadows. If you'd like to submit a question to Mark, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on Submit a Question. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. I want to give a big thanks to all of those who've contributed and are continuing to contribute. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye.